This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. To the highway, in a brand new day, gotta let it go. Welcome back to Open the Voice Gate, Rewind and Rewatch, episode 18, covering Mercury Rising 2011 from April 2nd, 2011, from Atlanta, Georgia, at the Presidential Ballroom. We are members of the Voices of Wrestling Podcast Network. You could find us on the Voices of Wrestling Podcast feed or on our own dedicated RSS feed on any podcast platforms and applications applicable. You can find us on Twitter at Open Voice Gate. I'm one of your hosts, it's your old pal, Iron Mike Spears. Joined as always by my co-host Case Lowe, and also joined by special guest Joey Bay. Joey, thanks so much for coming aboard for this. Thanks for having me, guys. I've been pestering you for a while, at least Case, uh, having been to quite a few Dragon Gate USA shows. Uh, it's uh, it's fun to go back in the time machine and listen to you guys every week and review these shows. And uh, I'm glad to be a part of uh, that experience now. <laughs> Joey, you might be the person that I know of who's probably been to more Dragon Gate USA live than anyone else. How does that feel now, <laughs> like eight years later? Oh, wow. Uh, depressing, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's uh, it's pretty cool. I mean, there was, a, there was a lot of good stuff sprinkled in there. And, I mean, most of the shows, I'd say the weekend that – or the show that we're reviewing was one of the last shows that I went to okay. in this run of Dragon Gate USA shows. There were a couple more. Um, I think we were actually at a couple uh, in 2014, and we just didn't know each other. But, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's crazy thinking back on all these shows that I went to. <laughs> Joey, were you at the first Dragon Gate USA show? I was. I was there front row with uh, my good friend, our good friend, Robert McClymans. Yes, that's right. Yeah, so you, I mean, you follow the podcast. You've heard us talking about it, but... What are your thoughts from that debut show until where we are now, early 2011? As a fan following in real time, how did you see the promotion change in that two-year period, and what were your thoughts on it? Uh, in the most simplest terms, I think Gabe uh, kind of got in over his head, <laughs> uh, for lack of better terms. Um, I think there was a lot of of Dragon Gate uh, support, and um, I'm sure they were funneling money as well at the beginning, and then they saw that, as you guys have noted, uh, attendances kind of just waned and and continued to wane as the years went on, and uh, their involvement and the guys that they were willing to fly over kind of decreased, and then Gabe started focusing on domestic talent, and uh, he kind of pivoted towards focusing mainly on evolve as you guys i'm sure know as well uh being the experts that you are (laughs) 
But um, yeah, I mean, it, it, I don't think it was ever a, a terrible or a bad product until maybe the very end. And even then there was there was a lot of good stuff in there. It was just not Dragon Gate related <laughs> for the most part. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, there was a lot of excitement. It felt like a Dragon Gate product those first six months to a year. And then it started feeling uh, like a Gabe product. Yeah, like that's one of the things that at least during this rewatch, because I remember during the time being so excited and then getting so unexcited very quickly as the promotion went along. And as I'm rewatching these shows, I'm kind of, maybe it's nostalgia glasses being on. I'm like, okay, this, this wasn't like the dumpster fire that I thought it was towards the end where I thought that after four or five shows case, and I would be like, okay, we can't do this anymore. Like it's, it's such a gradual thing I've at least experienced. And, even like going over the this show that we're going to talk about tonight, it does feel like that for a while, and it might just be because Dragon Gate was still willing, willing to pay those tickets and they were trying to find a way to make it make sense financially, it did still kind of have enough of a sheen of Dragon Gate for me to be like, okay, I'm okay with this. Yeah, for sure. I uh, I don't know. I just I just feel like Gabe had his crop of guys that he was kind of, developing and evolve and once dragon gate wasn't too keen on sending their guys over i don't know i you guys may know better than me but do you know if the talent was almost like reserved and kind of apprehensive to come over after a certain point in time it's like i i just listened to you guys review uh which show just aired this week it was uh the atlantic city new jersey show from uh, the ace arena um United finale. Yes, United finale. Um, And they, uh, I mean, you can't fit more than 100 and 150 people in that building. And it's like, we're going to fly our six top talent over for 150 (laughs) people that we're likely getting in for free or on discounted ticket prices. And it's just a dumpster fire financially. And I mean, I guess it's just interest levels just kind of waned over time. But yeah, like you said, Mike, I think. Going back and, and uh, watching these shows, I've, I've been just generally uh, in the, the coronavirus timeline going back and watching all, a bunch of old shows, whether it be WWE or Ring of Honor or uh, TNA or just a myriad of shows, just whatever comes to mind and I think might ple- like might soothe me, you know, from wanting to jump off a cliff during these times. And uh, I don't know, I think there is something to just watching something back from like 10, 15 years ago um, or even five years ago that kind of, it's just comfort food, you know, and you just, it, you, you look at it and you're like, you know, you, you take yourself out of the situation where you're in the moment and you're watching this stuff and you're, you're critiquing it and being very critical of it. And you go back and you, you lose all of that. And uh, it, it makes for a much more enjoyable experience, I think, as a whole. But <laughs> I'm, I feel like I'm going on about something stupid now. So, <laughs> No, no, I, I completely agree. I mean, that's part of the reason that I wanted to do this. I Because even though I was essentially following the promotion in real time for the last nine months of it, I have really good memories associated with watching some Dragon USA content, you know, three or four years after it happened. And now there's so much distance that we have on these shows. And I think part of 
part of the distance we have is what makes these shows maybe a little bit more palatable than they were in real time because now we know that a Johnny Gargano or a Chuck Taylor or a John Moxley, they were touted as prospects in this promotion and then went on to become stars. So it's not, you know, oh, who's this indie guy Gabe's bringing in? It's like, oh, my God, we're watching, you know, early Johnny Gargano. This is now historically important. So I, yeah. I think that's an aspect to it. And then, Joey, just to touch on, on your point about maybe Dragon Gate talent not wanting to come over to the promotion, we're about a year away from – I know specifically there's some drama with Masato Yoshino who – if my memory serves me correct, is on all of the shows up to this point, and if my memory serves me correct again, is on the shows for the rest of 2011, is on every show. And I know there comes a point in time in 2012 where he is maybe not vocal about it, but it became public knowledge that, you know, Yoshino was like, hey, I I'm over it. I don't want to do the flights. I don't want to do the shows. I'm hurt. Let me heal up. I don't want to. I don't want to be in America anymore. So he's the one that I know of that has a little bit of that. But I think the beginning of that is WrestleMania week in 2012. Actually, so we're exactly a year away from the beginning of that Yoshino saga. But other than that, I don't know of any Drangate talent uh, that at least went over one time that said no more. I mean, there were guys, you know, a, a Don Fuji or a Kagatora that we never got in America, but that could just be Gabe not having any interest in booking them. He probably didn't know who Fuji or Kagatora were. <laughs> I mean, I'll forever yeah. slight him for not having Don Fuji over on these shows, but <laughs> it, it does seem like that, like, and like looking at it as like an encapsulation, there is like a point that 2012, a lot of things like really kind of get that way. Because I do know that there was the previous president of Dragon Gate, uh, Okamura, who was the person that left in 2018. And he was someone that if he had his druthers and maybe if he didn't have his, like, if his protege wasn't in his ear all the time in Shima, it could have gotten the plug pulled really quickly. So I, I, I think that maybe talent wasn't as actively of detracting from doing the tours but i do know that there were people in the office at the time that already were thinking like this is what well, we're losing a lot of money on this and because it wasn't gabe who was fronting all those plane flights it was drag <laughs> drag gate official and i feel like after a while but i do know that like wrestlers like tozawa and shima and also naruki doi loved america so they were totally okay with it but i do know that Masato yoshino after a while he's just like uh not so much not so much <laughs> so i think that got to a certain point with that there. So we do have a show that we're going to talk about today in Mercury Rising. We are in Atlanta for WrestleMania weekend. Last week's episode was the day before WrestleMania weekend, at least at this time, really kicked off. And there was not as many notes this time, Case, but I know that you got some together, especially with the fact that this is the second time that Dragon Gate USA ran head-to-head -head with Ringer Honor in over WrestleMania weekend. Yeah, it's the the notes are shockingly sparse in the Drangate USA Newswire. This is WrestleMania weekend, and it's 2011. So you have to remember, you're only two shows in the game at this point, other than WrestleMania. It is still Ring of Honor and Drangate USA, and then the local indies. We talked last week about how CWF Mid Atlantic read a show uh, the night before with Drangate USA, but it is still just kind of completely a, a two-party system, if you will, of Ring of Honor and Dragon Gate USA. And 
We touched on some newswire notes last week, kind of the initial talent announcements of the weekend, you know, Yamato, Starker Ichikawa, Masato Yoshino, et cetera, et cetera. And then we've got some more for next week, but the only two notes directly from the newswire that pertain to this week, uh, there's a fun Gabeism here, February 21st, 2011. Uh, Gabe puts, have you joined our email list yet? Our email newsletter will now be known as the Email News Express. And we'll feature exclusive news, deals, downloads, and more. Uh, Joey Bay, what is your favorite email news express you ever received? <laughs> Honestly, I do remember signing up for this and receiving them. I can't say I had a favorite, though. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Oh, that's that's such a travesty. There's you know so much good information in those emails. I'm sure it was, it was more than just buzzwords. It was really building a community. Uh, but we do have that note. Building and a then community, also, Gabe, really? <laughs> that's I promise that that's my words, not Gabe's. Okay, okay. I've just I've I've developed such good Gabe speak that I sound like him now. Hey, hey, Mike. Do you do you remember these? Because I know you were watching at the time. Yeah, I mean, I don't remember it turning into the News Express. I yeah. do remember the, the the news wire and all these emails. I mean, I still think I maybe they finally have routed them to my uh, spam mail. Let me see right now. <laughs> yeah, I, I probably actually still have them in my email. <laughs> the last WWN alert I've gotten was from May uh, was from May eighth, twenty eighteen, talking about a seminar and tryout coming to Detroit and Seattle. I did not know that they ran Seattle, but now I do. Did wow. he involve run Seattle? They that did. doesn't sound right at all. They run it. Oh, ran... was it the Progress deal where Progress was running a bunch of shows? Maybe. I think that was it because this was uh, done when during the the Progress tour in 2018 because it did not have any. Yeah. There was no show, but he was there and was talking about Gabe Sapolsky's knew how to get booked lecture, which I guess at that time is, hey, you just pay me 500 bucks. Here's how <laughs> things work. So, Okay, so for whatever reason, I, I still have all of these emails, the news expresses. <laughs> for whatever reason, the, the first emails that come up before these news expresses are from, I just searched Dragon Gate USA news, news Express in my Yahoo email account. And uh, I don't take it for what you want, but uh, it goes from Dragon Gate USA in 2011 back to 2018. And their emails from Follow the Fall 1989 and their Ring of Honor wrestling notes. And I'm, I'm, I don't know if they're if this is Age of the Fall spam emails or <laughs> but Gabe definitely had uh, his system of emails. That's crazy, man. But, I yeah. think that was the conclusion of Project 161 was spamming yeah. Joey B's email account. <laughs> <laughs> We've oh, also got on uh, on March 4th, uh, just to, to encapsulate the, I guess what we'll maybe call from now on the email news express on March 4th, uh, there was a lot of... I guess in storyline discussion on who was going to get open the freedom uh, an open the freedom gate title match this weekend because Akira Tozawa who defeated BB Hulk at uh, the United Finale show he was lobbying for a title match but given he had split from Kamikaze USA at the end of that show uh, 
John Moxley and Yamato were saying, we will wrestle Tozawa, but we will not put the title on the line. And at the same time, Austin Aries was saying, well, I want a Freedom Gate title match. And if I don't get a Freedom Gate title match, or even if I get one and lose, I will leave the company. So on March 4th, uh, Gabe says, Austin Aries just changed the landscape of the Open the Freedom Gate title situation with a promo he sent into GGUSA officials, and they are now discussing a resolution. The debate is whether Aries or Tozawa will receive an Open the Freedom Gate title match in Atlanta. Tozawa is already scheduled against GGUSA champion Yamato for the third. However, John Moxley and Yamato have refused to put the belt on the line against Tozawa. Negotiations are going on now. We have not received word on how Yamato and Moxley feel about putting the Freedom Gate title on the line against Aries. Tozawa can make a strong case for deserving the shot in Atlanta after his performance at United Weekend, including a victory over Aries in a great match. And then it is announced a few days later that indeed Yamato will defend the belt against Austin Aries. And Austin Aries has stated that if he loses the match, he will leave Dragon Gate USA. So we have that to look forward to as we break down Mercury Rising 2011. But before we get there, Joey Bay, you were in attendance in Atlanta this weekend, and not only did you attend the Dragon Gate USA shows, you attended the Ring of Honor shows, the Honor Takes Center Stage double shot from Atlanta, Georgia at the Center Stage Theater. Let me run down night one real quick. We'll get your thoughts, then we'll talk about the night two card. But Honor Takes Center Stage night one. Michael Elgin defeats El Generico in the opener. There's a four-corner survival match with Homicide, Caleb Conley, Colt Cabana, and Tommaso Ciampa. Uh, there is Ayumi, Kuihara, and Hayo Matsumoto defeating Sarah Del Rey and Serena Deeb. The Briscoe brothers defeating Future Shock. Davey Richards in a Final Battle 2010 rematch. He defeats Roderick Strong. A Ring of Honor world title match with the world's greatest, or I'm sorry, wrestling's greatest tag team defeating the Kings of Wrestling. And in the main event, Eddie Edwards defeated Christopher Daniels in 30 minutes to retain the Ring of Honor world title. Joey, do you have any memories of this show? Because I do not. I do. I remember sitting up basically in the rafters uh, at center stage for night one. My seats for night two were much better, uh, basically directly across from the hard cam right behind the the soundboard, if it matters to anybody. Um, but my main takeaways from the Ring of Honor shows that weekend were uh, Future Shocks, two tag team matches. Uh, I still go back and watch these. They, they wrestled, like you said, the Briscoes on night one and then the Kings of Wrestling on the second day. Yeah. And those matches hold up so damn well. Um, aside from that, I remember the Joshi girls really kicking ass that weekend. And... Um, yeah, I, I mean, Eddie Edwards and Christopher Daniels in 2011 had a, a title match. I, I, I don't remember hating it. It's not, it I, I don't think I have the attention span to watch those two have a 30-minute match anymore. Um, and I have no recollection of this Davey Richards-Roderick Strong match, even though um, I remember just loving that pairing back, back at this time frame. It's something that I've gone to some Ring of Honor shows at center stage since I moved up here, and... That venue, and this is, like, other than, like, the Future Shock notes, like, this is feels like this is really when they started getting behind Future Shock, and we'll see how the rest of the year kind of plays out for them. But Center Stage is, like, I know that it's very romanticized because of uh, uh, Jim Crockett Promotions and WCW with tape there. But, like, when you get in there, like, I've sat up in those Raptors for an ROHCV taping, which also had an interminably long Christopher Daniels match, but you get there, you're like, oh, <laughs> I'm about to fall over because this yeah. is such a vertical yes. place. 
yeah, it's it's a basically like a 45 degree angle all the way up. And it's yeah, it's almost like you get vertigo if you're up there too high and you almost feel like you're on top of the ring or you'll fall into the ring um, just because it's so steep. But yeah, I, I agree with those sentiments for sure. And it's such a weird venue, like just for like the, the sake of how it exists, like wrestling in the round and you have everyone around it. And then you look on a TV and then we get in there and it's your I'm sorry, 45 degree angle. The, the closest thing I could describe it to was MSG, like going up and going, like, oh, God, this is getting higher. I feel like I'm almost being tilted over at this point. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just wild. But were these uh, TV tapings case or were these just go fight live shows? These were go fight live shows. So okay. both of the shows aired on live eye pay-per-view was Dave Prazak and Kevin Kelly on commentary, which was a brief pairing because we're uh, approaching Sinclair taking over and Prazak leaves when Sinclair is, is, is brought in uh, and Kevin Kelly stays as their, their play-by-play guy at that point. The night two card, I have stronger memories of this, mainly the opener, which it's funny that we all took away the same thing from this weekend that, wow, this was the future shock coming out party. Cause the show opens with the Kings of wrestling and future shock in a 10 minute match that I highly recommend. If you have not seen it, Colt Cabana defeated Dave Taylor representing the embassy, which is a match that I just do not remember <laughs> at all. Uh, there's Tommaso Ciampa versus homicide, Christopher Daniels versus Michael Elgin. This is a big Elgin weekend too, where he clearly becomes a focus in the promotion. Daisy Hayes and Tomoka Nakagawa defeat Kuihara and Matsumoto for the, uh, in the shimmer tag team title match. Uh, the Briscoes defeat the all night express. This is another really strong match. El Generico defeats Roderick Strong. And in the main event, a 32-minute match, the wrestling's greatest tag team, Charlie Haas and Shelton Benjamin, they defeat the American Wolves of Davey Richards and Eddie Edwards. So a show that at least I remember some stuff on, but also Cool Cabanda versus Dave Taylor jumping off the card a little bit at May. Yeah, and I forgot that Homicide was already back in Ring of Honor for a short time period. So we had to sit through Homicide doing... Case's least favorite match of all time, or at least in DGUSA to this point. And then within two months, he was already back in Ring of Honor. So no resolution whatsoever about, oh, I'm going to, I don't have to win a match. Like there's nothing there. Like that was it at the angle and Homicide was back. But was this the year that Dave Taylor was in, uh, I know he did King of Trios before this, but this was the year that he also did, uh, I want to say Bola. Yeah, that's right, Joey, Bola. Yeah, I think uh, so. Well, Fit Finley did bowl in 2011, but I oh, gosh, am looking gosh, at his cage match right. right now, and I don't think Taylor ever worked PWG. I would like to see that, though, because this is the year, and again, this is... Uh, we'll probably talk about this the same episode we talked about Sinclair taking over Ring of Honor, because there's that Evolve 9 show at BB Kings that is Johnny Gargano versus Chuck Taylor in the, in the main event, and then it's the first Sammy Callahan versus Fit Finley match, which leads to Finley going to PWG, and he does WXW that year, I believe, as well. So there's a mini fit resurgence. But as far as I know, Dave Taylor is working Ring of Honor uh, and then a bunch of other obscure indies for this year that doesn't wrestle another match uh, until 2017. So quite the lineage for Dave Taylor. Yeah, you're, you're, you're right. I, I was... Uh... I was mixing up Dave Taylor and Fit Finley. Yeah. <laughs> but was that the same year, though? Uh, or was that Yeah, that, that was 2011. Because 2011, Bola was only one night, and they booked Finley for that. Gotcha. Did not, it's kind of wild thinking about that there was this Blue Bloods like, resurgence on the Indies in 2011. Like that's, <laughs> that's something that, like, living through it, I'm like, yeah, no, I remember Fit Finley did Bola now. 
that I th- thought he was Dave Taylor. But yeah, no, they became like things on the indies for for a l- little short period of time, I guess, before Fit was rehired by WWE. I guess. Yeah, that <laughs> timeline would add up. Uh, did you have anything else for the uh, notes case? I've got nothing. I am ready for Mercury Rising 2011. If both of you gentlemen are as well. Let's do it. All right, let's get into it. Mercury Rising 2011, again, was at the Presidential Ballroom in Atlanta on the 2nd of April. The attendance reported by Dave Meltzer was 600, with this also being their debut on WWN Live. So I think last week we were kind of confused if this was a WWN Live show uh, for the Open the Southern Gate. It was not. This was, it got a reported 450 buys, which the, the, the main interesting thing about that is since it was their own service, they pretty much were keeping every single dollar from it versus Go Fight Live, which had a 50-50 split, I believe. It was like $15, and you got $7 back there. It turned out that with WWN Live, unless it was someone gave a code or like signed up under a friend, WWN Live would be getting all $15 there. So we open up with a special attraction challenge. Case, I've started to write down all of Gabe's dumb match names <laughs> so, that, so that I don't forget because it's always one of those things. I'm like, oh, yeah, no, he calls these things. And basically every single one of these matches on the show has it. It's a special attraction challenge match. Eric Cannon versus John Moxley with John Moxley winning in 7 minutes and 31 seconds with a distraction, low blow, and roll-up. And, well, we have more John Moxley and Rebby Sky Saga going on this weekend. Yeah, Joey, do you have any uh... – recollection of Rebby Sky being a thing in 2011 because I have been very confused over why she was on a show at all but we are now five shows deep into the Rebby Sky Drangit USA era and it <laughs> makes less and less sense every time I see her yeah I, I have no real recollection as to why she, she was getting booked I remember her on the shows and I remember Trina Trina Michaels uh, accompanying John Moxley. Um, also, I, I was very confused at that. I think she was at least a wrestling fan, as was Rebby Sky. But I just don't know where Gabe was, uh, like, what the allure was with booking these these girls. I mean, I, is it a sign of the times? Or <laughs> I, I just, I don't know what the draw was. Like, did he think it would bring in, like, extra pervert fans or something? I don't, I don't get it. <laughs> He really pushes the fact that Rebby Sky is a former Playboy Playmate and Miss Howard Stern really hard when she's uh, when she's debuting with the company. Now, I still like Howard Stern, but I also understand the cultural relevance of Howard Stern in 2011 was far less than it was, say, I don't know, 20 years ago. And I think the same <laughs> the same could be said about Playboy. Why he is obsessing over the fact that this girl was in Playboy, and I guess that Howard Stern likes her is. I think maybe more so than anything in Drangate USA, or I'm sorry, in Gabe's era of Ring of Honor, like this feels really dated of just like, what, who cares? Like I, internet porn exists in 2011. I don't understand why Gabe was obsessing over this. And and it's something that like, that there is like mentions like through the reporting and maybe I, since I didn't grow up with ECW, I did not see the similarity, but I was like, oh no, Gabe is taking after his mentor, Paul Heyman and, wanting to have more of an ECW feel with this, but it just was, like, uncomfortable, like, watching this. It was, like, like even at that time, I was, like, why is this, like, a thing? And also, again, we talked about this last week, second to last night for John Moxley and DGUSA, and this is how Gabe Sapolsky is wanting to finish out his ride before he goes to WWE. 
side note on John Moxley and this being his last, it, this was his last week. And you said that right, Matt? Or yeah. Mike. Yeah. Yeah. Um, as I was, uh, going to, uh, relieve myself in the bathroom, uh, I had to pass a John Moxley in full gear, no shirt, cutting a promo to himself, I guess, practicing for like whatever bit he was doing that day, um, before the show. And it was just, I, that sticks out in my mind so clearly that, I, I mean, he is who he is now and he's a huge star. He's the world champ in, in AEW, but like, I'll always have that moment where I walked in and he just was cutting a promo in his underwear. <laughs> <laughs> it, is, worth sharing. It, it is crazy that it is Mox's last weekend in this company. And we talked about it at open the Southern gate about how it just felt like a missed opportunity and how, Comic-Cons at USA essentially disbands in a backstage promo at the end of United Finale, not in front of an audience, just a simple, like, okay, we're done with this. And instead of really hammering home that Tozawa's been in the company for a year and John Moxley tried to mentor him, but Tozawa surpassed him, and they could have been building towards, like, Mox versus Tozawa headlining the second night of, of this weekend, or I guess the third night, the second night in Atlanta, but instead he's just wrestling Eric Cannon. And there's more discussion about the women that he's around. I mean, Lenny Leonard is still talking about the weird charisma that John Moxley has that just, he gets these women to follow him everywhere, which is still very funny to me that that has been the consistency in John Moxley's character since his debut is he's just women love him. I don't know what it is, but women can't get enough of this guy. And like, it's a fine match. I mean, I, you know, I think Eric Cannon's much better in openers than he is at main events. I think his style is just a little bit more geared towards that. For me, it's it's a three-star opener. I like what they put on the table, but given the fact that since he debuted in November of 2009, John Moxley has been the focal point of Americans in this company, and now he's leaving. Gabe knows he's leaving. He is... Uh, announced, I, I, it might have been public knowledge even at this point that he was going to WWE after this weekend. At the very least, Gabe knew about it, and he's really going out with a whimper here, and I just can't believe it. Yeah, and I went two and three quarters on this. I was really enjoying it until we had like all the manager interference and it kind of plays straight into the finish, but it, it just seems like at this point he's already clearly shifted the lens of okay these are the american stars away from moxley and now onto ronin and ricochet without like any like sort of like interaction without them because like there was like a level of interaction when john moxley even though like he really came aboard in november of 2009 but like that was at also at a time where you know davy was around and then like it looked like that there was going to be a davy part in kamikaze usa that he usurped and that all made sense and then you just have like him doing his things and then Maybe later on in the night when Yamato sent him back, that was supposed to be more of indication, but I kind of came out of this going like, oh, I think this is one of the things that Gabe really messed up in the run of the promotion was with how much of a figure it was. I mean, we talked about how well like Moxley was translating over to at least like observer readers and observer voters, and this is what you're doing on his last weekend, and I just can't get that out of my head. It's really disappointing. Yeah, yeah. And then after that, Rebby Sky came out afterwards, you can't hear her. Another classic DGSA. Uh, <laughs> were you able to, like, do you remember, like, the microphone being really loud in the video? I know that's a, a very particular thing from, like, eight years ago, but I just, like, 
the, the fact that like the that you couldn't hear a single thing that was really said on the house mic the entire night really threw me off and it started off with Rebby Sky. No, I the only thing I remember about the house mic is and and this is a, a point I'm sure you guys were going to note um, because they were doing live backstage promos in between matches on the show. I remember uh, I forget the the ring announcer's name. Uh, Larry Legend. The, Larry Legend. Yes. Um, I hated him at this time. Like <laughs> he just every sentence ended with, or every every sentence began with, uh, "Ladies and gentlemen," <laughs> it, it just it made my skin crawl. Uh, but between matches, when they do these promos, him or one of the the ringside, uh, like either the bell ringer or somebody, had to run the microphone back so they could cut these promos. Oh, and, really? Uh, <laughs> yeah, that sticks out with me too because I uh, it. it took a second for me to realize that oh yeah they did these live in the moment and it was kind of actually really awkward when you're in the building um but you know as as like a finished product on a dvd um it it really it came out pretty seamlessly but i i wish i had like a rip of the uh original ipay-per-view to see how it actually came across back then yeah like with this being their first ipay-per-view there was a note about how it was an extended uh intermission because one of the cameras broke but you couldn't tell this on dvd or on their network so definitely like and i remember watching these shows at this time but i don't remember like the weird pauses and maybe they were able to do that but come on you have one microphone that's tied into the pa system <laughs> that that's i i expect a little bit better from you gabe sapolsky but that's even kind of oh. wild oh i have i have another this is unrelated to this show uh but related to low rent gabe sapolsky isms please um, share uh this was a a dragon gate usa show in chicago i forget the show name it had a i think it was either from this year or early 2012 it had a Pac and uh uh ricochet match it had an air fox tag match where he teamed with sabu (laughs) Um, (laughs) that is untouchable 2011 untouchable okay that makes sense yeah september ish Um, yeah so I had front row seats to that show as well. Um, the ringside attendant slash uh, timekeeper bell ringer was uh, none other than uh, Dr. Keith Lipinski. And his the, the, the ring bell for this show were two steel pipes that he had to clang together. <laughs> this, <laughs> like, and, and they weren't like, they weren't like, you know, short little pipes that you could hold in both hands. Like, they were extending t- down his forearms. He had to, like, choke up like it was a baseball bat to cling these these pipes together. And every time I see him, I, I try to remind him of this. But I, I, he always no-sells me. So I have to, like, like project this onto you guys because I know you guys would at least appreciate it. But that's another uh, low-rent game. Gabeism, <laughs> Joey. Whatever I was expecting when you started that story, it was it did not end how I thought it was going to. <laughs> and I am, I am so glad you shared that with us. That is the best story that's been shared on the podcast so far. <laughs> hey, the sac, the sacrifices you make so you can print off these holographic stupid ass tickets that are. I, I I have all over my basement now, signed by the Dragon Gate guys. So I guess I'm the the joke's on me, but, you know, you got to cut corners with ring bells so you can print out these fucking tickets, man. <laughs> Sorry for the the, uh, the blue language. But, no, like, it's insane because he's borrowing rings. Wouldn't you think, like, if you're borrowing a ring from someone, in essence, 
I assume <laughs> that since you have Dr. Keith there, that it's AEWs, and I bet Danny Daniels had a ring bell of that time. Don't you think you're like, hey, toss in the ring bell as well, so I'm not just hitting pipes together to make a noise? <laughs> like, that's just incredibly Laurent, even for Gabe. I, <laughs> I'll never forget it. <laughs> I, I mean, how, how can't you? How can't you? Oh, God. <laughs> when you guys get to the show, please remember that and try to to watch out for it. He's, I think he was sitting on the right side of the ring uh, if you're watching from the hard camera. So later in 2011, when you guys reviewed this, look out for two steel pipes as the ring bell and Dr. Keith clanging them together. <laughs> I, I can't wait. I'm so excited. Yeah. <laughs> I'll be concerned by this. I guarantee you that. Uh, wow. Oh, yeah. So Rebby Sky did that promo and then Moxley <laughs> threw Val Malone into her and then Sky gave her a DDT and then Trina Michaels clocked Rebby with a with one of her heels. A lot of hoardiness was exhibited all throughout this segment. And then we had one of those backstage promos, funny enough, with Austin Aries saying <laughs> that everything's at stake against Yamato. Talks about how both of them do the kick and the brain buster. And then he said, nothing short of unconsciousness will take Austin Aries out. Probably the most tolerable Austin Aries promo, I feel like, in my opinion, that he's had throughout this promotion. Specifically in Dragon Gate USA, yes, because I, there, there was some stuff coming up on this show where I'm like, wow, you know, either this angle or maybe not the angle, but you know, either this holds up really well, or I don't remember this guy being as good as he was. Uh, the Aries drank at USA run up to this point has really been a massive disappointment. And I say that without factoring in maybe some personal news that has come out about Aries uh, since he, since we started covering his time in the promotion, but his promos have been, for the most part, Triple H-esque. I mean, they almost have that cadence and tone of like an opening Raw promo. And here he mentions how, you know, Yamato does a, a kick to the head and a brain buster. And Aries has beaten, you know, a laundry list of guys with that same combination. And he plans on doing the same to Yamato tonight. So it's a it's a rare good Austin Aries promo when his Dragon Gate USA run. Yeah, it, it really did feel like that we were getting like the before the House of Hardcore weird promos that Austin Aries got, it seemed like that he was already on his bullshit in 2010 and 2011 here. So glad that at least that on the night he's seizing, he's leaving, he did that. And that led us to a six-way elimination match. It's not a freestyle. It's a full-on elimination match. And they made sure we knew that. Consisting of Brody Lee, A.R. Fox, Jimmy Jacobs, John Davis, Silas Young, and the debuting Hollywood stalker Chikawa. Just running over the eliminations real quick. Uh, John Davis defeated uh, Stalker Ichikawa with a lariat in three minutes. Jacobs defeated uh, Fox with a Contra Code in seven minutes. And then Jacobs went on a tear. He had three of the five eliminations in this match. He, he eliminated Silas Young in 11 minutes with the end time. He takes out John Davis with a combination crucifix bomb from him and a big boot from Brody at 12 minutes. And then the final elimination was uh, Brody getting the win in this match with the truck stop in 13 minutes and 54 seconds. And... Joey, the big question I have was, it seemed like everyone knew who Sakura Chikawa was. Did it feel that way live to get to see a legend like Sakura Chikawa? Oh, yeah. I um, I have a mark photo with Stalker from this show um, with Jay, like, creepily standing in the back. It was before we knew <laughs> each other, but I had posted it to my Instagram story a, a couple months ago because I, I found it. And uh, he replied, and he was like, hey, that's creepy me, like, in the background of your picture. And, uh, yeah, I connected the dots and made sense that he was at a Dragon Gate USA show. But, um, yeah, it, it definitely seemed like he was well-known. Uh, his spots that you would expect to hit definitely hit in the three minutes that he was in this match. 
Um, yeah, he, it was even I was laughing rewatching this uh, earlier this week even. Um, but would you guys say that this six way is one of the more diverse collection of talent <laughs> in a six way match that Gabe has ever booked? I mean, you got Brody Lee, A.R. Fox, Timmy Jacobs, John Davis, Silas Young, and Stalker Ichikawa. It's so vastly just like different ends <laughs> of the spectrum everywhere. It, I, it, it didn't make sense. And then on top of it, I didn't realize it was a six-way elimination when I was rewatching. So for the first two entrances, it was Stalker Ichikawa and A.R. Fox that came out. And A.R. Fox was wearing like his... Uh, his jackets. Yeah, they were jeggings before jeggings. It's crazy. <laughs> but, like, so I, uh, they come out, and I'm thinking, like, there's no way this is a singles match. I would have remembered an Air Fox and jeggings versus Stalker Ichikawa <laughs> match that I would have been to or been at live. Um, but, yeah, then a collection of other men continued to come out. And it, uh, it was still, it was a fun match. But, yeah, to get back to your original point, yeah, I, I, Stalker was, was definitely over with that crowd that weekend. It, it, well, it's, oh, go ahead, Case. Well, Joey, you were – we should have maybe mentioned this at the top of the show, but you were following Drangate in real time as well. I mean, I, if if memory serves me correct, you speak very highly of the 2011 Drangate Japan run as well. Yeah, I think I think I pester you about, like, <laughs> finding those shows. I've received some texts about maybe digging up some files somewhere that I can't <laughs> find. Yeah, that sounds familiar. <laughs> it's uh, – I just – I heart, whenever I think of like prime, just uh, like peak Dragon Gate, at least for for me, it was the Blood Warriors Junction Three feud, and I I don't think that's uh, like a hot take or anything. I think uh, most people that have followed the promotion for an extended period of time think that that was one of the hottest time frames in Dragon Gate history. But I I remember the the fifty minute Infinities just being like just bangers at that point, and uh, yeah, and then they. They ended up, I think, within that year, uh, extending the Gaora tapings or shows to like being actual two and a half hour specials, at least for the Korokins and the larger shows in Osaka and Kobe. But um, yeah, it was it was a great time to be a Dragon Gate fan, except for the the merch. And I have some of these shirts like those. I, 2011 was a weird time for fashion with those large, just off center screen print T-shirts like the world one shirts that were on this show. I don't know if you guys caught that. Like, Oh yeah. It's just like big block lettering all over the back in front of the shirts. And I'm like, man, I wouldn't be caught dead in that right now. But like in 2011, I like was frothing at the mouth to get one of those. <laughs> <laughs> the thing that I always remember merch wise, and it's something that they don't do much anymore, but now they have like the really cool track pants with every unit's colors on it. I think that's really neat was everyone. Like they had their own version of track pants for everyone. And I, and it's always something that whenever I see the Blood Warriors one, it's like the least Blood Warriors one, at least at this time period, because it has like almost like Adidas track pants but with gold Blood Warriors on the on the ass of it. And then the T-shirts, Gabe Sapolsky still owes me a Blood Warriors T-shirt. I'm never going to get it. But like I remember like obsessing about the Blood Warriors T-shirts and like this, because like World 1 had some awful T-shirts in retrospect. But yeah, the TV, yeah. The TV at this time, and that's one, one, one of my favorite parts of doing the series is now, because... DGUSA luckily like ran concurrently with Blood Warriors and Junction Three. That like getting to the point now that by the time we do our next weekend case, we will be in full on Junction Three versus Blood Warriors, and it's just such a fun time to reminisce. So 
it, it, it's something that like at this time like i remember like trying to find all the media fire posts whenever a new episode of infinity came out before i found out about tape trading so oh, man. it's something that this has really taken me back and seeing how soccer chikawa was in in this match was just a blast and everyone kind of playing up with the shtick and then you, you know for like some of these matches at least the ones that we rewatched recently case it felt like that the four ways and the six ways were kind of aimless but this one like it was 13 minutes but like everyone kind of did their stuff no one outstay their welcome i still wonder like you're absolutely right joy this is like the most bizarre mix of six people that you wonder how they laid out this match and that <laughs> like all six of them huddling up and then like sakura chikawa the veteran out of all of them going like okay i'm doing this i'm doing this you're getting a finger up your butt and then yeah. i'm gonna go dive off the top rope after i'm eliminated and it's gonna be great so it just was like a fun time i, I really enjoyed this for what it was oh and I, hey mike not to cut you off case uh oh go ahead just in case you still want a Blood Warriors t-shirt, the original logo t-shirt is available on Dragon Gate's Pro Wrestling Tees website. Just in case you didn't know. <laughs> I, I, it's more the principle of Gibbs Bulls. <laughs> I know. I, know. I'm just, I, I was on their, that page a few weeks ago like, oh, they have a Pro Wrestling Tees store. And I'm, oh, they have Tozawa's old, like, uh, uh, Andre the Giant, uh, like, rip-off logo shirt right. and everything. Uh, they still have all of that, so, yeah. Just in last, case you still wanted one. <laughs> last time I saw it, I think they saw, like, a Katoka retirement t-shirt on there. <laughs> yeah, they added the Katoka retirement shirt, but other than that, I, I believe... And I've never gotten this sourced through either party, so I don't know. But my understanding is the Dragon Gate merch that is on Pro Wrestling Tees is directly sourced sourced through Drangate UK and the right. rights they had to the branding and images there because it all is of that time period. But Joey Bay is 100% correct in his Pro Wrestling Tees plug. You can get Blood Warrior shirts, Junction 3 shirts, Mad Blanky shirts. There's a whole bunch of goodies there. I will say for the six-way freestyle match, I am obviously the high man on the four-way freestyle from the first anniversary show with uh, Swan, Taylor, Ricochet, and Adam Cole. Since then... I, I think on every show, with the exception of, or I guess on the on the remaining 2010 shows, then maybe one or two uh, since. I know there was one in Philly. You know, Gabe's thrown these multi-man matches out there, and they've just felt lesser than. I really think as time has gone on, he should have left the four-way freestyle alone and just been like, okay, that was that was the match, and we'll still be able to sell DVDs promoting that one four-way freestyle, but we can't top it, so why do it? This six-way is not as good as that, but it is a match that I went four stars on because okay. I think it is it is the best version of this match possible. You have Starkery Chikawa, who kind of leads the early goings of this match with some legitimately great comedy spots. I do think they make a mistake in having John Davis pin Starkery Chikawa instead of Brody Lee because Davis and Brody uh, wrestled the night before, and then tonight... There's clearly like a big guy tension there, and Brody was clearly the heel. But the crowd loved Stalker Ichikawa so much that when John Davis pinned Stalker, he got booed. And I think it just it would have been an even bigger and a more fulfilling reaction had Brody been the one to pin Stalker. But other than that, you know, you get John Davis and Brody Lee going at it. Uh, Jimmy Jacobs goes over on AR Fox. I thought AR Fox looked really good in this match. It was the 
best AR Fox performance I've seen up to this point in his Dragon Gate USA run. And then Jimmy Jacobs, who made a big deal at the end of 2010 about, you know, he's put his brawling behind him. He's going to wrestle and he's going to become open the Freedom Gate champion. Well, he went on a losing streak on the Northeast shows to start the year. Lost last night, or I guess wasn't on the show last night, but lost three matches in a row. And then comes in here, goes on a roll where he defeats A.R. Fox, he defeats Silas Young, he defeats John Davis, and then the guy that started his losing streak, Brody Lee, he and Brody have this great back and forth where I really thought Jacobs was going to win the match. I was like, oh my God, they they got out of the storyline in a really efficient way. Like, Jacobs is going to do what he's going to, he's going to go on to wrestle Austin Aries on the next night, and then instead... He, you know, eats a big move from Brody Lee and gets pinned. But I, I just love this. This was the kind of match that these freestyle matches, these multi-man clusters, this is what you should strive to do, where you get a bunch of guys looking good, but one guy becomes the star of the match. And weirdly in a match with Star Kreechikawa and John Davis and A.R. Fox, these young guys and, and Stalker, Jimmy Jacobs is the one that comes out looking great from this. I went four stars. I loved it. I went three and a quarter, and I thought I might have been a little bit high there. But Case, man, you, the, apparently your methadone is a great freestyle match. I did not know that until today. <laughs> when they're done, really, it's a type of match. It's much like the way I feel about trios matches. Unfortunately, they are done out of laziness rather than as a creative way to further along storylines. There's so much you can do, especially when you're doing an elimination match like this. There are so many different opportunities to tell stories that I just feel like more often than not, companies just don't put the time and energy into them to do something. And this, I mean, you mentioned it, you know, earlier of, you know, how are these six guys laying out this match together? I don't know how they did it, but it felt like there was a cohesive story in this match that it was more than just a bunch of spots. And I really, really liked it. No, this definitely felt more cohesive. And I think also when we compare them to like the past for freestyles and especially like the ones we saw in Burlington, you have a different class of wrestler in them. I think that helps out as well. I mean, like all six of these guys like post post this point. I mean, Sakura Chikawa is a legend and he will always be a legend, even though he has his mask back and that's against the rules. Uh, but then you have like Air Fox, Silas Young, John Davis, Brody Lee, and Jimmy Jacobs. When John Davis, who would pretty much have a run with Gabe until the end of WWN, is like the low person on what kind of career you have, that's six pretty strong guys here. And, and you know, maybe it's the fact that you would put in like your Rex Reeds and the people who shouldn't be in the ring here, but it all makes sense to me how this was effect- how effective this was considering who all were involved. Yeah, it, not to cut in, but it, it definitely seems like, like you guys said, it, these guys put a match together to where everyone had a purpose and every elimination served a purpose. And like Case said earlier, um, I mean, a, a lot of these matches are just, it's just random acts of moves and random sequences, but everything kind of built on one another so seamlessly. Um, it's a, not to say it's a perfectly constructed six-way match, but uh, it was definitely up there, yeah. Yeah. And then after that, we went backstage with Eric Cannon. He's pissed off about being fucked in the opener, and then that would lead up to something that I didn't realize was happening this weekend until I saw it in the ring. So we'll get into that <laughs> when we get there. Uh, Freedom Fight video. I, I Did they play the... Did, did this, like, spur anything to you? Because we've now seen these videos a lot, and I'm tired of them each time I see it. Like, this wasn't something he played live. This is when they were running the microphone back and forth, right? Yeah, yeah. I think this was a DVD edition like the commercial for for freedom fight you mean yeah yeah i think that was a an 
in addition to the DVD, like in uh, post production. Yeah, it just is one of those things that I will hate these until they stop having them. But then we have <laughs> the second special attraction match. See, I did take notes over all of this. Masato Yoshino versus Sammy Callahan. Masato Yoshino won in nine minutes and twenty three seconds with the Soul Naciente and. Maybe this is why uh, Yoshino got tired of going to America, was having matches against Sammy Callahan. <laughs> I mean, I feel like Joey Bay and I together have seen more Sammy Callahan matches in person than, I will say, most people. I, I'm sure there are people that have been at more AEW shows than the two of us combined, but we have seen a lot of Sammy. We've done our time, okay? I, I, I have paid my debt to society, but I will say... Callahan came in at the end of 2010, and then there was a clear shift in focusing him at the start of this year. He has the match against Akira Tozawa on the New York show. He's in a freestyle match that he wins in Philly. He's a featured player in the eight-man tag on United Finale, and then he gets a big singles match against Rich Swan the night before. It is clear that Sammy Callahan is going to be a major player in this promotion. And while I didn't think this was a great match, I got to say, Sammy Callahan was wrestling the, at the time, Open the Dreamgate champion, and he certainly didn't embarrass himself. I mean, I thought Callahan was maybe a step below where, say, if you look at, like, Shima versus Gargano, not from Open the Southern Gate, but from the first anniversary show, that was like a, okay, American has a chance to, like, put up or shut up here. Like, he can sink or swim. This was similar, and while I don't think... Sammy was quite as good as Gargano was in that match. Uh, so far, I have not mind, uh, m have not been bothered by Sammy Callahan being in Dragon USA. Now that could change quickly, but as of right now, I do not mind him here. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed this match. Uh, I, I remember. I, I don't have any recollection of it uh, actually seeing it live, but on rewatch, I I really enjoyed it. Uh, and like you said, they they kept it under ten minutes, so it wasn't egregiously long or anything. Um, and that's an easy format for Masato Yoshino to run around the ring and, and have a high, high or fast paced, high impact match. And Sammy Callahan can keep up when it comes to those two aspects of wrestling. So, yeah, and, especially at this time, he was in great shape. I mean, compared to like 2016 to 2020, Sammy Callahan, where he's, he's put on some, some pounds and. Uh, say what you want about his in-ring. Um, he's he's kind of gone the the route of kind of using different means, you know, weapons, matches, and things of that nature, where this was a, a crisp, you know, just pure striking, like, 10-minute, like, match. And In the hobby, it's not easy being a fan of ripping packs or repacks. We hype ourselves up thinking, ah, maybe I can pull a Ken Griffey Jr. rookie card but with zero transparency on available cards and hit rates, it's all just a shot in the dark. Until now. Introducing Slab Packs from ArenaClub.com, the only repack that provides real value, a complete view of all possible cards, and clear hit rates for each one. Now, when I buy Slab Packs at Arena Club, it finally feels like I know what I'm getting. I was able to open an Arena Club slab pack, and, and I'll be honest, it was a lot better than what you normally do. Say you go to a card show, and there's a random innocuous brown bag of cards, and yeah, you can open it, and look, it's going to be junk. You're, you, you know what I mean? Like You know what you're probably going to get in those. Maybe you find that fun, and sometimes I do. Sometimes I like just opening up cards and saying, oh, hey, look at some random cards or whatever, but if you're really in this game to, to find value and find particular cards, 
it sucks to have to buy these mystery packs and it ends up being you know almost nothing you know nothing of value not with arena club you can display again of all available cards hit rates grading so you know that when you're opening up the slab pack you are going to get something valuable you are getting something good and arena club in addition to having those great slab packs we just talked about is also a marketplace for card collecting buying trading selling displaying all that sort of stuff but those Arena Club slab packs, man, they are revolutionizing the repack game with transparency. After your pulls are revealed, they'll immediately be placed in your vault for safekeeping or trading and selling, and you can have them officially graded by Arena Club as well. So again, you know, setting these things off, it's going to be officially graded by Arena Club. And the Arena Club grading process is accurate, fast, and transparent with full grade rationale provided and explanation of how your card was scored. So whether you're buying, selling, trading, or displaying, Arena Club is the card collecting platform that you have to check out. So right now, I've got a special offer here for Voices of Wrestling Network listeners. You can get 10% off of your first purchase by going to arenaclub.com slash V-O-W-Net. Again, that's arenaclub.com slash V-O-W-Net. Now, that's a crazy offer. That's 10% off a $400 slab pack. $40 off right there. 10% off your first purchase. No matter what that purchase is, 10% off again that's arena club.com slash vow net arena club.com slash vow net for 10 percent off your first purchase on arena club and we thank them for sponsoring the voices of wrestling podcast network I, I think he shined pretty well yeah it's something about when i say like he's tired of it this did this did not look like it was in it was 10 minutes but uh, Sammy Callahan, maybe it is how well that his strikes looked. It looked like it was like, oh, that's a tough night at work to do that. I guess that's more <laughs> more of my statement there. Like, it is like a really, like they go and it strikes, which is something that you usually don't see from Masato Yoshino too much. Like he does have like his big overhand, uh, his overhand chop and then his lariat, and that's usually about it. But they went back and forth with that. And, you, you know, it was something that like watching this match and – also, you could see that for a, on a weekend, like Yoshino wasn't on the card the last night. He was not in Burlington, North Carolina. The Dreamgate champion does not go into Spears territory, apparently. But uh, <laughs> it, it, it's something that was like remarkable to me, and maybe it's just the weird things I pick up on. Was one of the most impressive tans I've ever seen Masato Yoshino walk out into a ring with. Like it, it was like to an extent that maybe he spent like the whole day that. He was already in, in Atlanta. He was running the seminar. Maybe he spent the whole day in the tanning bed because he looked like pretty golden at that point. Well, it's WrestleMania weekend. He's got to have his WrestleMania tan. Well, there we go. But yeah, <laughs> it, it, and it's something that like I liked how like at the time when I was watching this match, I was like, okay, whatever. But then I realized, okay, things are coming together here that it was effective. And I think that's something that on a show with Gabe where he's really kind of uh, fumbling the football on one person with John Moxley, it does make sense. Like, what would, DUF would be beginning at this point, or at least the start of their story would be on this night, and it made sense. Like, okay, tough out for Sammy Callahan. Afterwards, he says that he matters. And then you had Eric Cannon earlier being real frustrated, and it all made sense. And I think that's something that for, like, a match that you would see on the card, and be like, oh, okay, I wonder what's going on here. And then you go back, and you're like, okay, this is actually the start of a longer storyline. I felt like that was pretty effective in that manner. I would agree. And then we had John Moxley backstage. John Moxley is a trendsetter. He likes his Baja hoodie that I complimented him on a couple weeks ago, forgetting that this promo even happened. And he's in style. Austin Aries isn't. And then he does a long Terry Funk promo. 
does the it was uh it was on the low end of the moxley promos but the terry <laughs> funk stuff at the end did make me laugh so we're worthy of my time dare i say i i, I enjoyed his his uh take on his his parka that he was wearing <laughs> <laughs> how he brought it back in style like okay that's all you see on on college campuses nowadays i'd assume right right case uh, it was it was more of a thing when I was in high school. I think now the Baja has once again gone out of style. Oh, but it, it definitely had a resurgence that Moxley was ahead of the curve on. <laughs> That's it's, fair. It, it's something that how John Moxley was able to just basically like, because he seems like a guy who would, who would have worn this in 2010 and thought it would be perfectly fine. And then he's <laughs> 10 years ahead of the curve or rather six or seven years ahead of the curve, which is something. And then again, if, if you're really like looking for some of this promo, the Terry Funk impression is actually a pretty dead-on ter- Terry Funk impression without him trying to imitate his voice, so that's worth watching. After that, we had our first of two title matches on the show. This was for the Open the Brave Gate Championship. I think this is the first time since in Ring of Honor that the Brave Gate was defended in the United States as Pac would defend against Akira Tozawa. He defeat Akira Tozawa in 19 minutes and 31 seconds with a bridging su- German suplex and... It, this was a match that I remember like talking very highly of, like in a retrospect and rewatching it live. I'm just like, okay, it's really a shame that other than in uh, 205 Live and the very short like pre-show match that they had on a pay-per-view that we didn't get to have like peak Akira Tozawa, who's someone who's still in his prime, going against Pack, who completely changed his character around over the last three years. And this is like this is a match that I loved, but it made me angry because like, oh, they could have had so much more if they were still in the same place at the same time. And that was like one of my big takeaways from this. Joey, what do you think of this? Yeah, I, I, if there's one match that I remember from this show, it was this, this one. And I think my expectations were, I mean, I don't think you could have too high of expectations uh, when you consider these two guys against each other. But I, I remember enjoying it, but I remember the finish just being so flat. Like you kind of what you were saying, Mike, where, I mean, I feel like they were just getting to the point, like, you know, they could have, if they had 10 more minutes or something, they could have had just like a match of the year candidate, whereas they just had a, a, a fun little 20 minute sprint. Um, but yeah, I, I think I, I, I also think that the venue uh, with the, the lower ceilings, I know they, they weren't egregiously low, but like I, I, it was drop ceilings and you couldn't get your max vertical leap off the top rope or anything like that. Um, I, I remember just kind of being bummed when I got to the venue and seeing that and being like, there's no way Pac's going to be able to do like his, his finish <laughs> in this room. But uh, I, you know, on rewatch it, it was, it was a really fun match. I loved it. I jo- Joey brings up a good point. This match with 20 minutes and it feels like they had more left in the tank. You know, there was more I wanted to see from these two in this exact scenario, I, you know, the finish was maybe a little abrupt where Pac just hits this bridging German suplex and wins it, but it, it's a slow build. It really almost felt like a traditional title match. And then once things went going, it's Pac and Akira Tozawa. It's not rocket science. It's just, it's going to work every time. Uh, there's a sequence in this match where Pac hits his rebound German and Tozawa pops right back up to his feet Big boots Pac in the back of the head and then hits a German suplex of his own where Pac falls right on his neck. 
And that is the sequence there where it's like these are these are two guys at the top of their game. I mean, this is worthy of being an open the Brave Gate title match in Japan. Uh, this this would have felt right in place on a GG proper show. It just so happened that it's it's happening in Dragon Gate USA, which to my knowledge, it's the only time the Brave Gate was defended in Dragon Gate USA. Mike did steal my oh, trivia note that uh, Matt Seidel defended the open the Brave Gate title at Ring of Honor's fifth year festival Dayton against Austin Aries in 2007. And then last year, the Open the Dreamgate title was defended as Naruki Doi defeated Susumu Yokosuka on one of the WrestleMania weekend shows. But this is a Brave Gate title match, the second one in America. I went four and a quarter. I loved it. And even then, I thought it could have been better. The finish was just a little ill-timed, which is a bummer because these two guys went out there and killed it. Yeah. I, I mean, go ahead, oh, I do. I have a question because uh, I'd assume you guys watched the, the, the show the night uh, prior, um, was there like a, a notable spot where Pac got busted open? Um, yes. And, and it's okay. I, because I, I remember just like that Lenny Leonard just kind of referencing his match, uh, the previous night and how he, he split his head open. And then throughout the match, it, it, his, uh, his cut just started bleeding again. But, um, yeah, what, what happened? <laughs> uh, that's 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 the thing is uh, I, we should have noted that, yeah, Pac bleeds quite a bit in this match, but it's not as much as he did the night before. Mike, I, I don't I don't know of the specific spot that he got busted open. I think Lenny said on commentary during this match that it was uh, by way of a headbutt. But I don't right. remember. I don't remember like a cracking Kohei Sato, Shuji Ishikawa, yeah. like headbutt spot in that match. But yeah, Pac bled the night before quite a bit, but I don't remember if there was an exact spot that cut him open or if it was just something that happened and, you know, he just continued to bleed after that and then bleed into this night because he got cut open pretty bad in this match as well. So what happened in Burlington is that there was a spot where, and this is actually like a rare thing where Gabe used picture-in-picture because picture he wanted to show what was happening with uh, Taylor and Ricochet in the ring and then Pac and... Kiertazawa on the outside, and you just like see one moment there's a headbutt, and you don't even like get to see it very well because it's in the picture in picture, and then you start seeing blood splatter the floor in Burlington, oh, wow. and then by the time he gets back in the ring, he is, it, it's a pretty healthy blood flow, and it got close to that point here, but like I, it just seemed like that with that like that kind of cut, you're it's just going to reopen constantly unless you don't do anything for like the next two weeks, so. That's what happened there, and it was a it was an impressive amount of blood, even here today, like or on the show, like it it, it was something that's something that I'm definitely going to keep an eye on for Ultimate Gate to happen the next night. But yeah, as I went four and a quarter on this as well, okay. So I think this is the first time that the Akira Tozawa bonus or bias hasn't like put me too much ahead of you on this. It just it really did was like this was a closing sequence away from being something truly special, and instead was very great, and I think it has to be with the with the ceilings because it's something that's not as noticeable as other venues that they've run, but you know, it had a drop ceiling. It did seem like that they did put the ring in like the place where like the ceiling was a little bit higher, but even like ricochet wasn't doing crazy stuff off the top rope in the main event. And it did seem like that everyone was like more mindful of this. And maybe this is why there were more topes on the show versus general, like just dies from the top rope. Yeah, yeah I, I would say, especially because Ricochet is not doing dives, someone must have told him, hey, if you jump, you will hit your head on the ceiling. So, yeah, one of my wrestling venue pet peeves is low ceilings. And turns out most of the wrestling 
at least independent wrestling companies that I follow and go to shows, they, they tend to uh, book low ceiling venues for whatever reason. And it's, it's frustrating, but it's also fun to see, especially with these guys, like see how they adapt because it's not like they're like, they're shortchanging their performances in the, with, with these matches, but they're, uh, they're just adapting on the fly and, and given the, the circumstances and, that's that's always kind of fun to to watch. Yeah, and it's something that uh, just because I have my notes with all the DGUSA shows, I remember this happening. He did use the uh, bridging German before and uh, on the New York City show, so he it wasn't just like completely like this is something he at least in the time period has defined as a finishing move, and it was a smart, really smart, I would say, audible for them to call here. So it made sense. It's just one of those things that if you're going to WrestleMania weekend and it's the first time you're seeing Pac, you've watched all the infinities and see him like a PWG, you're going to want to see him try the 360 shooting star press and you didn't get a chance here. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And then in the post-match blood warriors run out and lay out Yoshino and pack. And that is to build up their United gate title match. The next night, Shima grabbed the mic and then taunted them for tomorrow. Ricochet ran into the ring to cheap shot pack right as they were leaving. Like everyone else in blood warriors was already in the back, but Ricochet had to get one more cheap shot on Pack, which I thought was a really nice touch. Yeah, no, the uh, uh, the the Blood Warriors have now firmly replaced Kamikaze USA as they aren't overbearing, but it is clear that they are trying to get them over as heels. And to this point, for as good as Shima is, for as good as Naruki Doi is, for as good as Ricochet is, to me, the most effective and arguably over member of the unit at this point is Brody Lee, which is something I, we will continue to talk about as the year goes on is the way Brody Lee was mismanaged in this company. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This was like the one little character trait of Ricochet as this is during their pretty much the one of the biggest Bravegate title feuds in all time, at least I would say. And they made it, they managed to make it play off here too. And I thought that was pretty nice. After that, we went straight to the back. We had another case of microphone running as Ricochet would prove themselves, <laughs> or not Ricochet, sorry, Ronan would prove themselves tonight, and each of them kind of cut their own thing and ended with Swan going Ronan baby. And kind of like their their standard thing that you would see out of them. I mean, it, it's clear now you're seeing like Gargano getting more comfortable in this situation, but like Chuck Taylor really is the backbone, at least when they're doing these out of the ring segments with them, I think. I'll save all my Ronan thoughts for their match. <laughs> And then we had a WWN live video, and that led, I guess, to the intermission because they, because Larry Legend made a reference to intermission. And then we had a seminar match, as they were proud to say these were people that paid their money and they were the most impressive people at the tryout. It was Sherrod, who people probably better now know as Zinshi in MLW, teaming with Danny Steele, who I've never heard of before and does not have a cage match entry against. Sin City Saints of Billy and Scotty Rays, also without cage match entries. And this match wouldn't happen because Sammy ran out, laid them all out, and then Eric Cannon ran out, and were, and they brought the back, starting off what would become the DUF, the Dirty Ugly Fox. Joey, your memories of the DUF. I'm sure you got many fond ones. <laughs> um, it's a lot of cursing. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, this angle was... Very awkward, but it kept my attention. Um, and I, I honestly like, I don't, I've never seen anything like it where, like, I've seen like two, like, like an odd couple pairing, but they're not an odd couple. They're just pissed off and they're, they're mad 
at the system, I guess. And uh, so they start beating each other up, and through that, they decide to start teaming together, and they walk to the back fighting, but also with their arms around their, each other. So, I, yeah, no, it's, it's fine. Gabe was trying something, and it ended up eventually working. But yeah, this this initial angle was was pretty awkward in my opinion. It's one of those segments where Gabe just had ideas, and I've said before on the show, there are a few things more dangerous than Gabe Sapolsky having an idea. <laughs> and while I like the idea of Callahan coming out destroying these guys, and even if it's corny, and I think it's it's especially corny just because we've now had a decade of Sammy Callahan doing this, and we see it all the time of, you know, he, he doesn't give a, a fuck, he'll say it. Um, it. It's just the unnecessary swearing, and then Eric Cannon comes out, and yeah, you know, he's mad too. You know, nobody cares about them. They're both pissed off and no one cares. And then they start hitting each other, but are clearly friends. And it's just, there has to be a more effective way of doing this because I like the the root of this angle. I like the idea that Callahan and Cannon and what is essentially a pretty boy promotion where you have, you know, Yamato and Masato Yoshino and Naruki Doi, and then even the Americans they push. It's, you know, Chuck Taylor and Rock Hard Abs, Johnny Gargano. Like, it's a bunch of good-looking dudes in this promotion. It makes sense that Eric Cannon and Sammy Callahan would find some sort of solace in one another, but those two didn't need to beat each other up to get this angle across. It's just another one of those deals of, like, oh, God, like— that was almost really cool. And that seems like it's the story of Dragon Gate USA. That was almost really cool. Yeah, I, I feel like a better execution of this angle would have been if if both of them had the same idea and bum-rushed the ring at the bell, <laughs> but from opposite sides of the, of the arena. So they're both coming in from different sides of the ring, and then they kind of have that like Spider-Man meme where they kind of <laughs> look at each other and they're like, I'm you, you you're me. Like... And then they just start beating the hell out of the the, the actual opponents in this match, and then uh, and then they kind of argue and then team up. But I don't know, Joey. <laughs> we, Joey, we got to give you the pencil because I like that angle a lot. <laughs> <laughs> that was yeah, yeah, I, I just it, it was awkward, but I mean, eventually they had a a fun little staple, so I, I it mean, worked I, out. They, they found out a way to get Pinky Sanchez over on pay-per-view so (laughs) so after that we had another backstage thing where pack was not wasting anyone's time he said that blood warriors had now has their attention uh pack always on these promos at least as a baby face it's always kind of a mixed bag with that and at least he kept it short here i like the visual of him cutting the promo while bleeding it's a different side of Pac than we normally see but uh, we have now spent longer talking about the promo than the actual <laughs> promo because he really did not seem thrilled about having to cut this one. I, I really appreciate that Pac is someone that is all about brevity whenever he's given the microphone, <laughs> at least as a baby face. So I, I could actually write down what he says uh, verbatim versus summarizing it. So I appreciate that. And now we've probably tripled that length there because <laughs> I was stumbling my words there. And that had the uh, second title match of the evening. It was for the Open the Freedom Gate Championship where Austin Aries claimed that he would walk out of DGUSA if he could not win this title. Well, he lost, and he would have one more match the next night. It was Gal- It was with the Galleria in 26 minutes. And the real interesting thing about this is, like, we talked about how Kamikaze USA pretty much stopped functioning to exist. I believe this is the only time in the pre-match where Yamato sends John Moxley to the back that we actually had, like, a 
somewhat on-screen formal dissolution. Like that, like that was it. I think unless something happens next week that I'm completely forgetting about. And then we had a really strong uh, Yamato title defense and Aust- him and Austin Aries. I felt like worked pretty well here for a match and for someone that I'm usually pretty down on, like Austin Aries. I felt like that this was a pretty successful title match. Joey, I ran this opinion by Mike a little bit earlier today. We typically don't talk about these shows, but we we had to send a few messages back and forth, and we ended up talking a little bit about this match. Maybe it's just because it is Austin Aries involved in this match, and he does have a history in big title matches, at least on the landscape of independent wrestling. To me, this match felt like a classic Ring of Honor world title match, just with Yamato plugged in for, you know, insert Ring of Honor wrestler here, and then Aries played his part well. Did you get a similar vibe from this match? Yeah, absolutely. I, I It definitely harkens back to, like, Aries' matches with, with Joe and Danielson or or even Roddy and, and Nigel um, from, like, 05 to 07 Ring of Honor. Um, but, yeah, you, you could it's the same formula. Um, I say what you want. I mean, I love the formula. I, I've always been a fan of Austin Aries' in-ring work. Uh, say what you want about him as a person, but I think he's an incredible wrestler. <laughs> um, <laughs> I hear somebody laughing. <laughs> I just, I, I really enjoyed this match. I did as well. I loved the start of this match where they, they kind of do some early opening match grappling like you would expect. And then out of nowhere, Aries hits a brain buster and hits the 450 splash. And, you know, as Lenny Leonard points out, you know, this is what he beats Mojo with. This is how he won a world title. And he comes so close to doing it against Yamato here, but it doesn't exactly work out. And then from there... The match is maybe a little slower than I would have liked. I think Pac and Tozawa did a better job of balancing uh, the in-between moments and sort of building up to a more climactic finish. But then once the match heats up again, uh, there's, there's the great spot where Aries does the head kick on Yamato, but then Yamato jumps up, hits a brain buster, and Aries kicks out at one. And that had tried and true old school Ring of Honor feels to it. Uh, there's a big brain buster spot from Aries where he connects with it and Yamato kicks out at, you know, a 2.99 and the crowd goes nuts. It really felt like the the crowd in the building thought Aries was going to win this match and then a Galleria finally puts him away. In, in the building, Joey, was there a sense that Aries could actually win this? Yeah, for sure. I, I And to go on top of that, like, I think that this crowd, I, this was the hottest the this crowd was on that given night, I, I, it was, it was a great match. I, I think they, they really just captivated everyone. And that, that formula works because it is essentially a ring of honor crowd. I mean, it's the WrestleMania weekend, which two years prior was ring of honors, like big weekend. It's like to, they're bolstering their, their money-making weekend or whatever you want to say. Um, yeah. I, I think the, the crowd bit and, I remember biting and thinking that he was going to be the new Freedom Day champion because I, I mean, they were playing up the whole angle like, oh, he's going to retire or he's going to leave too, and I, I think that also helped with the, the convincing aspect of him actually winning the match. And I don't know. No, yeah, I, I liked it quite a bit. Just real quick, I gave it, I gave it three and three quarters. Mike, where did you land on this? I was four flat. I might have liked this a little bit more than you, but that's also because I think. Like, I'll talk about this being, like, really a vintage Ring of Honor world title match. 
And I know Gabe Sapolsky has talked about how positively he viewed Yamato as a worker, but this really felt like a bread and butter Gabe Sapolsky booked Ring of Honor main event. And it worked, I feel like, uh, because of that, because they were able to make it feel like the big fight feel. The fans at that time had the trust in Gabe Sapolsky that they weren't going to do a bait and switch about Austin Aries leaving. And it just like all just kind of worked together. There was like the, uh, there was one moment that I wrote down because I thought this would pop y'all. Uh, on commentary, uh, Lenny mentioned that Austin, that Yamato had fans in Ireland. Do we think we know who those fans are? <laughs> <laughs> one really vocal fan in Ireland. <laughs> <laughs> that, that just popped me. But like this was just like really well done. You could see why Gabe really liked both having Aries and Yamato in his promotions here because it made perfect sense that they would mesh in this way. And yeah, this what didn't have the frenetic pace and didn't feel like a full-on sprint like the Brave Gate match did, but it felt like a big singles match. And I think for this weekend being WrestleMania weekend and arguably Gabe Sapolsky more so than anyone else outside of WWE has made WrestleMania weekend what it was. It, it, it was very comforting to me. And I don't remember if at the time I bet into the angle of, oh, Austin Aries is leaving at this time. I, I, I think I was like, oh, Austin Aries is putting his title on the line here. Maybe he's going to go to TNA after this. I think that was like my mindset from there, but I ended up, really enjoying it and i felt like there was like lot, enough smart interplay based off of that promo of hey aries knows about the kick and knows about the brain buster and that played into the match really well and i ended up really enjoying it was hey mike I, yeah at this time was this the the year that wwe brought back tough enough and then like shortly after this weekend aries tried to to uh, like apply for a, a spot on tough enough and they they rejected him because he was short or something, and then, and then he actually ended up going to TNA. Is that, yeah. is that ring bell or is that is that okay? No, I couldn't no, no. remember if that was like the actual timeline of it all, but I, I do remember this kind of being Aries's like swan song on the Indies for a minute. Right. Yeah. No. This was uh, funny enough. We we haven't released the episode we recorded about uh, the Burlington show, but they had uh, Johnny Fairplay on it, who was married to at the time one of the people who was on Tough Enough. So this was like uh, right uh, after Tough Enough. So like this, I guess Tough Enough was 2010 or early 2011. So this was still fresh in everyone's mind. So yeah, I know, Joey, you're dead on. This was exactly playing off of that in the Swan Song idea. That's, okay, gotcha. Yeah, I completely forgot about the Tough Enough angle because there was, uh, the, the way the story is told from Aries' perspective is that he was going to legitimately retire from wrestling. Uh, now there's, there's some stuff that happens on the next night show that leads to Aries getting booked one more weekend in Drangate USA. So we haven't hit the farewell point for Aries yet. And then he obviously goes to TNA, but I had forgotten about the tough enough angle because it was kind of like, okay, Aries did the voice in the story mode of a WWE video game. I think WWE 12, the main character is voiced by Aries. And then he has the tough enough thing. And then it looks like he's going to retire until TNA books him to win on a pay-per-view. And then he goes on his, you know, his early TNA run, the 2012 world title reign is the, some of the best stuff on American television last decade. So it is a rapid shift in the trajectory of Aries career. But my understanding is, is that he was planning on legitimately hanging up the boots uh, shortly after this. And, you know, if he would have, he would have went out with this Yamato match, which was a, 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 a pretty marvelous way to go out. Absolutely. And after the match, they really played up 
the fact that Arias lost and was le- leaving Deep USA, went to the back for Jimmy Jacobs, who was talking about how life doesn't deal in absolutes. It was kind of the standard Jimmy Jacobs promo, in my opinion. And then it, he brought up the fact that him and Austin Aries have all this history, and then they would be facing a match the next day. And it says that Aries doesn't get a ride out into the sunset. He's going to go out with a bang, which I thought was a nice little note, especially for someone like Jimmy Jacobs, who's made such a character trait of how he was trying not to be uh, 2008 Jimmy Jacobs, and he still was like, hey, we have this history, and I'm going to acknowledge that, but I'm not going to make this overall thing. I just know that I'm not going to let you just have some easy out, easy win on your way out. I thought that was pretty effective. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. I, the, the way they've handled Aries this weekend has been much better than the way they've handled John Moxley, which if I had a time machine, I would maybe flip that. <laughs> not because not because of anything Aries has done. I just, I the more we watch these, I'm thinking, my God, Gabe, really messed up Moxley this weekend, but we will, I guess, get into a full discussion of that on the next show. Yeah, and then we had another uh, video. This time was for United New York City, and then we had the main event, the Dragon Gate six-way, or six-man trios match would return, the fifth one that they had, and they made a big deal about it being the fifth one that they, this being five-year anniversary of it, and the first time that it was an American team in the main event, as it was Ronan of Chuck Taylor, Johnny Gargano, and... Rich Swan going up against the Blood Warriors team of Shima, Naruki Doi, and Ricochet. And Doi would get the win on Rich Swan with the muscular bomb in 20 min- 26 minutes flat. And it- this is a match I liked, but because of like what they like bring up and the fact that there is this tradition, you, like I walked away from this match going, huh, okay, this was the six-man match. It was a good six-man match. But like when you bring up like the history of it constantly, and this match is not that a match that like ranks up to like the storyline history of the DG six, six man tag. It just kind of felt a little underwhelming, but that, all that being said, I really enjoyed it. It's just one of those things that like after the fact, you're like, Oh, that was the six man match. It, I missed the do fixer and blood generation one. At least that's the way I kind of came out of this with this. Joey, you were at the Phoenix shows because I believe we made fun of you when we covered them. Were you at any of the Ring of Honor WrestleMania weekend shows that had the Dragon Gate six mans on them? Unfortunately not. I started going to Mania Weekend in, in 2010 in Phoenix. That was my first one. But uh, yeah, I, I remember the previous ones fondly from DVDs. <laughs> yeah. So where, where do you think this one ranks in the lineage of at least up to this point you know you've got blood generation do fixer uh there's kind of a hodgepodge match in 2007 muscle outlaws typhoon in 2008 and then the main one the mercury rising six man from 2010 was shima drank kid gamma versus hulk doi yoshino where do you think the blood warriors ronin match falls in that lineage <laughs> way way far below any of those other matches even 2010 um i think it gets slept on because of the the weird venue the the center stage or whatever it was called uh or not center stage what was that the celebrity theater celebrity theater yeah with this the the theater in the round situation it it was uh i just remember getting to that place uh and just being depressed because they didn't draw very well there's it's like a 2500 seat venue and they're like trying to move everybody down to the first like four rows and they still don't have enough people in the building to fill the first four rows and uh even then i think that six man from 2010 um and i can't even tell you who all like all who was all involved in that match versus this one 
I just, I know in my heart, I enjoyed that match more than this one. And I think it's because Gargano and Swan say what you want about them at that time. And even Taylor, they were all great talents and had tons of potential, but they hadn't grown into the stars that they are now. So you throw them in there with Shima and Doi. And then even Ricochet too. Um, like to a lot of fans, he hadn't proven himself. Um, everybody knew he had potential, but he wasn't the star that he is today. Um, I think a lot of fans, at least my, I, I personally felt kind of shortchanged with this six man main event. Um, but it was still a fun match, like Mike said. <laughs> yeah, like, I I think I oh go ahead, Mike. Go ahead. I was gonna say I was at the uh, Typhoon versus Mon- uh, Muscle Outlaws one, and I remember like being like okay, okay, having my mind still blown even years after me getting yeah. to Dragon Gate. It was, <laughs> it was still like one of those matches. I was like, what the fuck am I saying again? Blue <laughs> language. Apologize, but this one you you have the talents, and then you have the fact that there couldn't really be any top rope matches. And then wait, Mike, so you were at the Orlando 08 weekend? Yes, I was. I was at both of the shows and I got yelled at by Gabe Sapolsky because uh, one of the Briscoes broke our chairs during the uh, Age of the Fall versus Briscoes (laughs) match. (laughs) That. Say what you want about. I'm sorry that happened to you in the game. <laughs> oh, oh, oh no, I, 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 it's Mike. Hilarious. We hear you. We're listening. We're sorry that happened to you. <laughs> but I that I'm I'm so jealous you were at that weekend because I was like I was a me and my pals were getting in the car going to all the Midwest shots for Ring of Honor at that point in 07 and 08 and like that weekend still stands up there as like one of my favorite like WrestleMania weekend shows, like you had freaking Shingo and Hulk and Steen Erico. You had Aries and, and Nigel in the, the rematch from the rising above match, which was almost just as good as that match. And then strong and Stevens and then all the dragon gate talent wrestling, the Briscoes and six man and everything like, dude, I'm, I'm so jealous of you right now, <laughs> but I'm well, sorry. Well, that the other thing about that, <laughs> the, the, the muscle outlaws typhoon match from 2008 is arguably a better in-ring match than Blood Generation Do Fixer. It's just that the crowd doesn't peak as high, but those are both five-star matches for me. And up until, uh, speaking of fans in Ireland, up until uh, this past March when Alan Forrell did the WrestleMania Weekend 2006 rewatch, and I watched the Blood Generation Do Fixer match for the first time in a long time, and that's when it clicked with me of like, oh my God, this match... It is it is so good and so historic, but I had long said that the Muscle Outlaws Typhoon match is actually better than the original uh, Blood Generation Doofix or Six Man. I just don't know if Meltzer ever saw the Muscle Outlaws Typhoon match, and if he did, he certainly didn't give it a star rating. I, I mean, it's classic, Dave, that if he saw it, he, you know, with 2020 eyes, it'd probably be five and a quarter, you know? It's, <laughs> it's, it's one of those things. Like, I'm glad you brought up the uh, Sinerico versus New Hazard match, because that was, like, other than, like, the, the main event, that was the match of that one show that I walked away going, that was one of the most insane things I've ever seen in my life. And at that point, I was still really new in my Dragon Gate fandom, but I was like, I've, I followed Shingo. BB Hulk seemed cool, and then I was like, that was insane. So, it, it was... Yeah, the Briscoes wrestled like uh, Dragon Kid and was it Saito? Yeah, yeah, that match was even like freaking bonkers, man! Like that whole weekend of show, like I'm so jealous of you. <laughs> now I want to go back and watch those shows. <laughs> it's 
it, it, it's something that like that venue and that's a venue that gabe would run uh-huh. up until like that because it was like right next to the amway arena it was like there it was the orlando magic's practice arena so it actually kind of felt like i don't remember what it's called the the place where heat gate happened elmcore i think it was El- elmcore it was a lot like elmcore in brooklyn where they had heat gate a couple of years ago it was, it was a cool yeah. place it was a pain in the ass like i remember brian alvarez at that time just basically saying i hate the city of orlando it is terrible <laughs> and like i ran to alvarez at the show and it was like the most harried i've ever seen someone at a great wrestling show i've ever seen in my life he just looked like that he was internalizing how orlando is so <laughs> oh, th- that's weirdly one of the big takeaways i've not that weekend outside the matches other than gabe sapolsky yelling at me which would start a trend because we're gonna get to the show eventually case where <laughs> the, the other time where gabe sapolsky and i've gotten into it so that was the main event uh uh, r- real quick, I, I I will speak on the main event for yeah. just a second. I, I, I loved it. Uh, it's of the matches listed. This is if we don't count the open the ultimate gate six man from Phoenix because that doesn't really count in the lineage of these matches. I do think it is the worst because 2006 and 2008 I've got it five stars. 2007 and last year's Mercury Rising I've got it four and three quarters. I went four and a half for this one. Which, it's unfortunate, because I think Ricochet, in particular, was just really handicapped by the venue, which is something that happened on the United Finale show, too, where there are so many guys in the ring, and there's so much stuff happening, but you put a a guy like Ricochet, who at this point, this is pre-2014 WWE tryout Ricochet, where his knees are already going. I mean, his offense is entirely generated by flight at this point. And he just can't really do anything. And then, I don't know if you guys noticed, but right before the finish, he tries to do a Sasuke special and gets caught up in the ropes. It looked really, really scary. But the one thing... Oh, go ahead. At the end of the... As they were exiting Blood Warriors, uh, Ricochet had, like, taken off his his boot. Um, So he must have screwed up his ankle on something throughout the match. It may have been that, but... I. Thought that was worth noting. Since yeah, you, no, it looked yeah. it looked really it looked really scary. It would if you know a minor ankle injury seems like the best case scenario for the way he kind of got tangled up on the ropes there. But two things jumped out at me here. One, I understand the early on Gabe Sapolsky infatuation with Johnny Gargano because there is something about the way Gargano presents himself that feels very TV ready and. Although, and it's true even now, where although Chuck Taylor is arguably more charismatic than Johnny Gargano, I know that if I'm running a company and I'm behind the camera, I can say, Johnny, give me a promo. I want you to feel like this. And he can go and he can probably deliver it. Whereas with Chuck Taylor, I am kind of handicapped to just say, okay, Chuck, be you. And I understand, like, I think that's a good thing, but I understand why if you're running a promotion, that is maybe a little bit difficult to get behind. But, you know, Rich Swan seems to be undervalued and, and is, you know, a designated fall post on in a unit that doesn't really need one at this point. And the focus seems to be going towards Gargano. And like I mentioned uh, either last week or two weeks ago, you know, Gargano ends up going back to Japan, but... He goes back mainly, I think, because he's opened the Freedom Gate champion, not really because people want him in Japan necessarily. No. But I was so no. I was so surprised that Chuck Taylor didn't get over with the Dragon Gate wrestlers because I watched this match and I thought Chuck Taylor far and away was the best guy 
on the Ronin team. I mean, he obviously has great chemistry with Ricochet, where once again, much like the night before in North Carolina, they have a sequence that is is more geared towards traditional lucha than it really is the Drangate style that looks so good. It's really amazing that those two never had a definitive singles match. Like, given the amount of times they wrestled each other and, you know, from IWA Mid-South to PWG to there's probably an Evolve match in there somewhere, none of them stick out as, like, this really great match, which kind of surprises me given how good their chemistry is in tags. But... To me, Taylor kind of blows away Gargano in terms of presence, and Rich Swan is never put in the position to be on the same level as Chuck Taylor, let alone Johnny Gargano. So, you know, there are a few things we've discovered up to this point in the promotion. I think we've historically underrated Pac and how good he is. I think BB Hulk is a little bit better in his prime than we remember because Hulk is so beaten down now. And I'm starting to develop a, a bit of a narrative of how underappreciated Chuck Taylor was at this time because again I understand there's a bit of a more mainstream appeal to Johnny Gargano but in terms of raw talent when I am looking at this show and this card and this match in particular Chuck Taylor is the guy that I was looking at as like wow this guy really has it all together and that leads me to the question that I want to ask both of you uh, both because you are following the promotion in the moment, so I, I we can frame that question there, but then we also have a decade of hindsight at this point. Ronan comes in at the, the last shows in 2010. We have the tag team title tournament at the start of 2011 where Ronan uh, wins their first two matches, but then they lose to Pac and Masaru Yoshino in the finals. And then they come into this match... WrestleMania weekend, again, there's two shows in town. It's Dragon Gate USA and Ring of Honor. There's a lot of eyeballs on the promotion this weekend. And Ronan losing this match after losing the finals of the tag team tournament felt really deflating to me because it's hard to say they've been buried because, you know, they did beat the Blood Warriors teams on the United shows and then they ended up losing to a World One team. But for me, this was like, this was the time to really get Ronan over to give them a big pinfall, even just a pin ricochet, and they don't do it. And I was super deflated by the idea that Ronan lost yet again. Mike, what do you think about this? Then we'll go over to Joey. Well, I remember talking last week about how they got clean swept by Blood Warriors the night before in Burlington. And I was like, I think that's a big sin. Like when... Like, it's one of those things that coming out this week, we still have one more night in this weekend, but I remember at the time, like, I was maybe one of the earlier people on Ch- on Chuck Taylor and Ricochet because I watched a lot of Chikara, and I was someone who even, like, tried to go to Chikara shows like I was at one of the King of Trios, but I always knew, like, Chuck Taylor was going to be this guy, and it's one of those things that when, like, it was always, like, kind of deflating because deflating is, like, the proper term for this because at this time, you have, like, Chuck Taylor who... In 2010, he might have already been a 10-year veteran at that time. I mean, that, which is insane to think about. But it, it's something that with Ronan, I think, and this is one of those things, like a lot of things have changed, like watching it in the moment and watching it with hindsight. But I still really feel like that they messed up Ronan. And I feel like that if anything was like the pen, like the real like the thing you pin at the top of it is, this could have been a moment where you really do it and i know that there's certain things that like shima's not gonna be taking the fall uh naruki doi is not taking the fall so it has to be ricochet and do they really want to pin ricochet when he's about to get like a sustained singles push coming out of it but then you just booked yourself into that hole 
Like, then why didn't you try to bring over, I guess it would have to be Susumu Yokosuka, and then have Susumu Yokosuka in World 1 versus Ronin and have Ronin win that match. Like, it's just one of those things that, even with, like, hindsight and nowadays, it, it's still perplexing to me, other than there had to be some politicking for why this didn't happen, and because Ronin needed it coming out of this match. Yeah, I, I have nothing of <laughs> value to really add. I, I, I wasn't really bothered by it in hindsight or, or now. But it, it, now that you guys bring it up, I mean, it does, it, it does kind of raise some some questions as to like why Gabe would book himself into a corner where he's got three new stars uh, that he wants to push to the moon with Ronan. Um, and they have to take a fall in like what they tout as like the biggest match on the Dragon Gate USA schedule. Um, yeah, it, it just doesn't doesn't really make sense. And it's also something like they come out all wearing Ronin tights for the first time on DGUSA shows. It just like felt like this was this could have been a moment that did not happen. And like the match itself, like because I realized that, that there were a couple of things I noticed there. You ha- you had a lot of angry Shima in this match. Yeah, yeah, I think, well, Swan, like, goosed him while he was, like, applying a hold on Gargano, right. and, like, Shima got pissed, <laughs> and then, I, which, like, I don't, I don't know, like, I, I was just re-watching this right before uh, we got on the call, and uh, I was convinced, I was like, dude, Shima, like, it, I'm surprised he would bring him over and, like, basically push him on, like, Dragon Gate proper over in Japan and let him become basically a... Uh, a true member of, of their roster because um, he seemed in the moment like legitimately pissed off at, at Rich for doing that. Right, yeah. It was like one of those like, oh, you really messed up moments that we yeah. haven't seen in a while from Shima. Usually it was Shima versus Mike Quackenbush that got really angry Shima <laughs> out of that. But that was like really noticeable like that that happened. And like the, the big thing about Chuck Taylor, like I think my favorite segment of this match was Doi and Chuck Taylor towards the end. Like those two guys like it's something that I'm going to be, like, kind of keeping on because those two guys really worked well together. And it's kind of frustrating, like, that Chuck was never brought back in Dragon Gate because I would love to see what a Naruki Doi versus Chuck Taylor singles match would have been because I feel like that that could have been something special knowing how Doi feels about America. He's definitely the one that's most positive about wrestling in America, and I came out of that. Uh, I also thought it was kind of funny. I wrote this down because it just popped me. Uh, Lenny made sure to state that the stream was crystal clear throughout the, the whole show. <laughs> <laughs> those are my big takeaways and then shima post-match acted like he was a dog and peeing on ronin like <laughs> shima was in a mood in this match well and he starts off the match by suplexing stalker ichikawa to the concrete <laughs> just kind of kind of because and it's one of those things that made me laugh when i saw it and then i thought just you know if, if you haven't heard our podcast that we did with uh, Drangate J where we talked a little bit about Stalker Ishikawa and the way he's now being treated and I laughed and then I was like oh man there was that felt like a shoot suplex too <laughs> like it went from a really fun spot to that I thought about it and it made me really sad <laughs> you know I, I Stalker Ishikawa deserves just a much better lot in life and needs to be recognized as one of the best comedy workers of all time but Still seeing like Shima go over and suplex him in the middle of the ring, I was like, okay, that's soccer. Yep, that sounds right. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Mike, you, what did you, Mike, what did you give the uh, star rating on this match? Four and a quarter. Okay, yeah, that's fair. Yeah, I, I, I feel like that. 
you know, with the Ricochet thing, and I did look this up while we were talking about Ricochet is not on the next night show, and I bet he was supposed to be in that tag title match, especially against Pac. So it seems like they pulled him after that. So like that was, it, if we got full bore Ricochet in a match where he could in a ring and in a venue that he could do his fl- his flips, and if we could have like that kind of element, I definitely would have read this and viewed this more highly. Yeah, yeah I think I that's fair. Uh, did y'all have any more last takes on the uh, six men? No, I did not. All I, right. I thought it was a it's a funny shout unless the the times the match times are not accurate on cage match. But the final two matches on this show both ended in twenty six minutes flat, and I don't know if that's a coincidence or <laughs> it has to be right. Like, I, how does that happen? I, I think it has to be. Uh, Dave only has a report for the second show, really, other than like strict numbers for the first show. So I think it's coincidence. Maybe someone had the numbers down wrong. So I gotcha. Yeah. So post match, uh, Pack and Yoshino attacked the Blood Warriors after they were really just kind of messing around. Then Shima grabbed the microphone. He claimed tomorrow they would no longer be. At, I can't read my handwriting there. I usually I can. It, or he's like that. He was basically running down, uh, Russell or World One. Usually I don't get the Russell One thing messed up anyways uh yoshino then said that they will never give up and that he will see them tomorrow and it was kind of interesting that they both i noticed that there were uh cameramen that i think were from Geora there that were taping stuff there so they, they did the both their promos both in japanese and english and you'll see them tomorrow and then pack did the uh, go home promo for the first i pay-per-view before she, yoshino got to give his final line of dragon gate usa and then they all shook hands and that was the show Fun show, a, a weird show. There is, and I, I don't know what it is in particular that makes it feel this way, but even compared to the Northeast United shows, these shows just feel different. Like Sammy Callahan and Eric Cannon are now clearly like core members of the roster, but at this point, it's still a Dragon Gate show, or Dragon Gate USA show, rather, with Shima and Doi and Yoshino and Yamato and Tozawa. And I would even count Pac as a, as a Dragon Gate proper guy, not really a Dragon Gate USA guy. So it's not like they're low on Japanese talent, but there is something about this show that just seems like, okay, like we're in a new era. Even if Moxley is still hanging on, these shows are just different than... Certainly the first few shows where it's mostly Japanese talent and then even that transitional period in 2010, because now it's not the build of Gargano, Swan and Taylor. Now it is Gargano, Swan and Taylor main eventing these shows. And and so far I'm okay with that. I like the output of almost all of the guys on the roster, but it, it in a subtle way, because it happens so quickly and so suddenly it is another changing of the guard and it feels like the beginning of another era shift in Drangate USA. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. It's definitely something that in retrospect we could see the bigger American stars being phased out and actually really this is the first true rise we have of DGUSA native Americans rising up on the show. And it, it, it's interesting to like watch back and be like, oh yeah, now we see that DUF would form and we see Air Fox now is getting more solidified but we also have to wave by to John Moxley and to Austin Aries. So I, I found this interesting, but it is kind of a weird show. Joey, what are your overall thoughts? I I do think that this was like a changing of the guard for sure. This this time frame, 
Dragon Gate proper and Dragon Gate USA. Um, it was it was a fun show. I, I can't say I was offended by anything on it besides maybe the Trina Michaels stuff. It was seemed a little bit crass and unneeded. But um, yeah, I, I I enjoyed watching it, and I think uh, if there was a promotion that had all of these guys. Uh, at least domestic talent wise, um, I think it would be a killer promotion. <laughs> it would be close to AEW, um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was a it was a fun watch. I, I appreciate you guys having me on. Oh, thank you for coming on with us. This was an absolute blast. Uh, Case, did you want to run down the show for next week with uh, Ultimate Gate 2011 before we get out of here? I can I can absolutely do that. You know, I I, I would love an American promotion that has say you know ricochet and chuck taylor and johnny gargano but but my understanding is ricochet is perfectly happy uh jobbing out on main event right now so more power to him i i hope i hope he's happy uh as we go into next week open the ultimate gate 2011 this is the only year in the dragon gate usa history that mercury rising came before open the ultimate gate so we get the the final shot of the triple shot weekend open the ultimate gate with jimmy ray versus johnny gargano a a six-way match between Eric Cannon, Silas Young, Lince Dorado, Sammy Callahan, Rich Swan, and A.R. Fox. A lot of names in that match. Uh, Stalker Ishikawa is going to go one-on-one with Brody Lee. And uh, if that wasn't a big enough challenge for Brody Lee, he has to double dip as he also wrestles Chuck Taylor on this show. The Open the United Gate Championships will be defended for the first time. It is Masato Yoshino and Pac against Shima and Naruki Doi. Uh, it looks like, judging from this card, we're going to get our DUF debut as well as they will challenge the Dark City Fight Club. That is coming next week, as well as Austin Aries versus Jimmy Jacobs, Yamato versus Akira Tozawa for the Open the Freedom Gate title, and the farewell of John Moxley. That is what's to come next week on Open the Ultimate Gate 2011. So, and, and I'm going to make sure that we know this for next week. It does seem that Ricochet was pulled, and I'd assume it was because of the botched dive. It looked like he came up limp on, so... That was interesting. Uh, so, uh, Joey, is there anything you'd like to plug before we get out of here? Uh, no, just follow me on Twitter at Joey underscore Bay. And uh, you guys, I, I appreciate you having me on, like I said. Um, I love these these uh, throwback episodes covering Dragon Gate USA. They, they make my Mondays, like, doable. Like, I, I hate, uh, like, whatever I have to do at work on Mondays, it's... it's uh, kind of lessen the blow so I, I really appreciate you guys doing these shows and then uh, also on the modern dragon gate coverage you guys are awesome with that as well and uh you guys keep my uh dragon gate fandom alive so i, I really appreciate the work you guys are doing well, thank you joey your your check is in the mail for putting us over <laughs> to such a high degree uh you followed the script to perfection well done that is the only take we'll need of that <laughs> Well, Joey, we need to find out another show that you're at live and have you back on recapping it when we get to it. Yeah, for sure. I would love to be back on. All right. Well, Case, you can follow Case at underscore in your case. You can follow me on Twitter at Fujiheya. That's two eyes like Don Fuji. You can follow the podcast at Open Voice Gate. And that's going to do it for us here. We'll be back with you next week to wrap up WrestleMania 2011 week on Open the Voice Gate. Take care, everyone. <laughs>